Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Legi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Daniel Wilhelm, president of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. And their mission is to create and disseminate knowledge against violence. They support research across all forms of violence. And today we're going to be taking a closer look at their work. The foundation examines enduring and urgent problems of violence, such as war, crime, and human aggression. And through basic and applied research, they aim to understand the causes, manifestation, and control of violence. And they spread this knowledge to inform policymakers, practitioners, and drive forward public discourse advancing the scholarship around violence. So you're in for a real treat, very informative conversation coming up. And without further ado, Daniel, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Uh, thank you, Alberto. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to see you again. Always good to see you uh, and speak a little bit about the world of philanthropy and foundations and all of this. I'd love to start by finding out a little bit about the work that you're doing at the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. You're the president. What's the foundation all about? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation um, has been in existence since uh, the 1920s, uh, but really over the last 50 years has focused exclusively on one topic, which is uh, attempting to understand violence in its various forms more thoroughly. And the specific uh, reason we do that is obviously to try to be able to prevent violence and ameliorate violence. And the and the, the methodology that we employ is to is to uh, is to support and conduct our own research um, so that knowledge about what works to prevent and ameliorate violence, its causes, its manifestations, its nature. Um, can be it can exist in the world and one hopes can uh, allow people in positions to uh, to do something about it to take up that knowledge and act on it we cover the waterfront as it were in terms of uh, all sorts of violence we you know we 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 support study of uh, domestic violence of crime of, in the united states particularly around gun crime uh, we focus on wars uh, civil wars, terrorism, and in a particular interest to us in recent years has been the growth of political violence, uh, particularly in North America and Western Europe, you know, societies that until very recently, I think most observers would have categorized as politically stable and, uh, you know, with a, with a, a large consensus about what uh, what politics means and what uh, democratic governance means, uh, we seem to see a lot of cracks and fissures in the, that understanding in recent years. And we've seen, obviously, most dramatically in the United States, the case of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, but in many other less uh, sort of flamboyant ways, uh, manifestations of political violence. And we're trying to understand that better and understand what it means for notions of democratic governance in, in the West. Fascinating. And how do you decide, how to triage uh, what sort of violence you're going to go for first? Because I imagine you have limited resources and violence by its nature, it's always urgent, always pressing, right? So I imagine everybody would like everything better understood, but... It, that's true, and and you know we have a we have an illustrious name in the in the Guggenheim name, uh, but we are a, a relatively modestly sized foundation as foundations go. So that makes it 
even more important that we try to you know marshal our resources and to deploy them wisely we we try to do it in a couple different ways um we um in the first instance we ask we ask researchers and scholars who are studying topics of violence to come to us and tell us what they think is important and what they think is pertinent um and we fund <clears throat> across disciplines, uh, academic disciplines, um, you know, everything from uh, the bioneurology of what causes human aggression to uh, political science. You know, why do, why do certain people take up arms uh, in, in political struggle when other people don't? To sociology and anthropology and public health and economics and you name it, all the various factors of the human condition that contribute to the the creation of violence and we hope can better help us understand its cessation. Um, and I think that's very important. Uh, we have two annual global competitions, highly competitive, highly rigorous, um, where we ask you know researchers to come to us with their good ideas. And I think that's very important because I think it's often or can be the case, uh, especially among foundations where there's a a presumption that because foundations have money, they have all the answers. And because the power imbalance between the haves, in this case, the foundations with money and the have-nots, those are seeking funds, that because that imbalance is so great, um, oftentimes people don't want to tell foundations what's really going on or what they really think or what they really need. In fact, rather that people want to sort of uh, tailor their their requests and their their supplications to foundations from you know in terms of what they, they think foundations want to hear um so i think there's well there's a challenge in sort of having an open call like that a couple of times a year and that it it, it can lead to very a very diffused grant making approach i think there's some real strength to it also in that it doesn't presume that we know everything that that's going on or that we have identified all the areas that are worthy of study the other way we try to do it, though, is that there, there are some things we have opinions about in terms of areas of urgency or areas of need. And in those cases, we try to you know, both identify them and then to support research by commissioning work. And we've done that um, in a number of different areas, most particularly around violent crime in the United States. Uh, but we've also then uh, tried to identify other topics of, of national and international import, such as the efficacy of economic sanctions uh do they work turns out spoiler alert no they don't <laughs> not in most cases nearly two-thirds of the times they don't work and when they do it tends to be in situations of civil war um and so we'll, we will either commission our own independent research or we will uh, ask leading scholars to either do a meta-analysis or to do a literature sort of roundup so that we can then help to communicate to people in positions of authority, people in positions of decision-making and action-oriented roles that we can try to then convey the existing state of knowledge on a particular topic. Um, I feel that's particularly important because there's a plethora of really good research and really good knowledge that exists in the academic world. It exists in scholarly journals, it exists in books, and it never leaves the academic world. Um, you know, some scholars are very good at writing for a popular audience or for a policymaker audience or the audience, an audience of the, you know, an audience of informed people in the public. But many are not. And frankly, the incentive systems in academia run counter to those, you know, those instincts of popularization or just, you know, fr frankly, broader understanding. And so 
we feel like it's an important role for us to play as a foundation to try to unlock some of that knowledge and to get it into the hands of people who uh, who can use it. We're too small. We're not an advocacy organization. We're not a policy shop per se. And we're too small to take on that role. But we do feel like there's an important role that we can play to either catalyze information uh, for those who can do something with it or just to get it into the hands in a, in a digestible form of people who can take action with it. I always like to use this word uh, decomplexification or decomplexify something. It's harder than it sounds, I imagine, right? Translating this complex research into something that a that a layperson or even a policymaker can digest and action. It's it's true um, because the, obviously, in many many cases, uh, if not most cases, those who have conducted the research, they have a deep appreciation for and understanding of the nuance, right? And that's where that's where a lot of the value and the 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 uh, the meaning of of the work is derived from but the challenge is and i you know as somebody who's a, a lawyer by training and who's done a lot of research and who's conduct is commissioned research in my, in my in prior roles i've been in and has worked with policymakers the problem is that you know people of authority especially people in government they don't have time to read a peer reviewed journal article of you know dozens and dozens of pages with many footnotes and they they don't have the time to read a book necessarily and so the trick becomes how do you be honest about what the research says and doesn't say how do you honor the nuance in a way that also allows people who are not technical experts who may not be able to follow all of the the ins and outs of a particular piece of research or the, you really understand the methodology in great detail how do you convey that honestly while also making it accessible to them? And it's it's not easy. Um, you know, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of drafts. It takes a lot of back and forth. Um, and you know, and so, but we think at the end of the day, our, the modest contributions that we're able to make in this particular area are worth it because you know it, it's it's seldom undertaken in a way that unlocks, as I said before, a lot of this this valuable research that's simply impenetrable to people who could really make use of it and besides translating the research into a digestible format um if you care about these topics as you as you as you mentioned you do presumably you'd like to get the timing just right so that the information gets to the policymaker at the time when they are conceivably going to be making a vote or enacting legislation thinking about formulating legislation right yeah and so we to the extent that we can Again, given our, our relatively modest resources and the fact that we're a, a small shop, um, you know, we try to we try to um, identify sort of breaking news, if you will, or at least try to be attentive to to contemporary issues where we think there's an opportunity to to have a, a you know have some influence on the conversation. You know, one example is uh, you know in the United States, there's been a lot of conversation about changes to the bail, to the way bail, cash bail is administered. You know, which is the you know for those who aren't familiar, it's the the money that you have to put up when you've been accused of a crime, so that you're not held uh, in jail pending the the, the resolution of of the judicial proceedings that will you know either find you in a, you know acquit you or find you guilty. Um, and it's been used for many, many, you know, years in the United States for all sorts of purposes, <clears throat> um, not necessarily related to, you know, the the primary reasons, which are many, which varies from state to state and varies whether you're talking about federal or state laws. 
you know, principally to ensure that somebody reappears for trial, should they show up after you let them go, or if somebody is a threat to public safety, you keep them inside. Um, it's been used for all sorts of reasons, and many people have a, have made very persuasive arguments about how it's criminalization of poverty. Um, you know, because these are people who are legally innocent, right? Two thirds of the people being held in jail in the United States are, have been adjudged not to, you know, not to be legally guilty. They are just pending trial. So you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on any given day in the United States who are in jail just awaiting trial. Um, and there's been a lot of political polemical uh, discussion about you know, crime, violent crime having gone up in the United States in recent years or types of it go, having gone up because of, you know, the lax, the, a new laxity in bail laws, jurisdictions that have decided to, you know, to not allow judges to impose cash bail in, in certain or in some cases, all circumstances. And so it became a, it's become a very potent political talking point. Um, and we wanted to understand what, what's, What's behind that? So we asked two of the leading scholars in the United States who've uh, studied this extensively, especially in their home state of Illinois. But they had looked at, you know, they looked at their own research. They looked at other research that had been done by eminent scholars in other jurisdictions around the U.S. And lo and behold, they found out there's no strong correlation between changes in bail laws and rises in violent crime. In some places, after changes in the law, violent crime went up. Some places it went down. Some places it went up, but not as high as the national average went up. So there's, you know, so what was clear, so it's a mixed bag, but what was clear is that the sort of political arguments that were being made uh, about the, the lethality or the, the dangerousness of these changes to bail law were totally unsupported by the facts. So that's an example of, you know, we know we've heard anecdotally from a number of people who are in the policy world uh, that that you know, that they've found that report to, you know, shedding clarity and shedding light rather than just creating heat, um, you know, to be very helpful. And so that in our, in many ways for us is sort of a paradigm of what we're trying to do, especially with these contentious issues where we're, you know, there's an opportunity to say, look, you know, let's take a deep breath and actually let's see what the science and what the research can teach us about what's going on and leave the politics to the side for the moment. So. Very interesting. Very interesting. And it's delightful to hear how it's great to hear how you're in, enhancing the body of knowledge, helping build this body of knowledge around this. Uh, what about not just translating the information into a palatable format, not just thinking about the timing, but actually getting that individual to read it? Because people are time poor. Do you do that on your own? Do you connect with lobby groups or policy groups or think tanks? Or how do you make sure that somebody actually is going to read this stuff? You know, be, because again of our our you know our limited size and resources, we 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 have over the last five five years or so, we've we have invested in our own capacity to try to spread the word and you know to become much more sort of proficient in using social media. And we have a new website, hfg.org, for those who are interested relatively new. It's about to go through sort of its 2.0 version. We're going to spiff it up a little bit and, you know, we think make some of the information architecture a little stronger. Um, but, you know, we've tried to, we've invested ourselves in our capacity to communicate. Uh, but we realize that, we're, you know, even after those worthy investments and our, the improvements that we've made, you know, and which are ongoing, 
it's still not enough. And so we try to we try to partner with other organizations. We try to partner with other funders um, who have greater capacity. Um, you know, so for example, we've been you know, and who have greater communications capabilities. Uh, to be you know, to be frank, also, I mean, not only do they have the financial resources, but they have communications uh, uh, chops that we, you know, that, that exceed what we're able to, to muster. And so um, for example, we've done a number of projects with the, the MacArthur foundation uh, around spe specifically around youth violence, global youth violence. Um, we convened, um, a, a, we've convened several gatherings uh, at, with the Salz with MacArthur at the Salzburg global seminar uh, to really look into different approaches to dealing with youth violence and juvenile justice uh, around the world and what can what can different systems and different nation states learn from each other based on different approaches in different places. Because, you know, it, it's, speaking from an American perspective, it's a very harsh and punitive approach that the United States takes, you know, and in many cases, you know, treating juvenile offenders uh, the way that adults are treated. And that's, you know, you know, there's all sorts of research that suggests that that's, you know, an ultimately very uh, counterproductive approach. Um, but that's an example of, you know, of us finding a good partnership with a, with a much larger funder, which with much different, you know, much, much deeper capacities in areas that we don't have them and to be able to then work very productively together with them on both sort of creating a new body of knowledge, but then also communicating about it. Similarly, we're in a partnership with Arnold Ventures and the RAND Corporation around uh, creating a new network of um, gun violence researchers in the United States. Um, and again, those are, you know, those are entities with, with much deeper resources than we, than we have. And again, we're able to sort of, I think, bring a distinctive perspective and, and specific capabilities and resources to bear and to be part of something that's, you know, I think, going to be important and potentially instrumental in helping, at least in the United States, you know, foster a much deeper understanding of gun violence and what to do about it. Mm. One area of research, and you touched on it a little bit earlier about youth violence. As I recall from one of our conversations, you do have quite a bit of research also into sort of the adolescence and brain development and the implications for that. And not just someone who might be classed as a juvenile delinquent, but actually someone who would be already over 18, but still have uh, there being a consequential side to how the brain's developing at a young person's age. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the sort of challenges around, uh, you know, both folks who work in the criminal justice or the juvenile justice system, uh, or who are just interested in studying violence, you know, people, you know, younger people tend to be implicated more, you know, more regularly in either, you know, acts in acts of violence, right, you know, in, and in terms of in terms of crime, in the United States, again, the area I know best, you know, criminals have people who commit crimes have sort of their their prime years, and you know, by the time you hit twenty four, you're sort of you're beginning to age out, right? And and so, um, and but as we know from brain science, you know, your brain is especially with males, which you know, if you've raised teenage boys, you have a, a very deep appreciation for this. You know, uh, brains are still physically developing until the age of 24 and right so there's and so in the united states at least the legal system considers you an adult at 18 but your brain is not fully formed and your appreciation for 
future consequences, your your executive functioning, all the things that your prefrontal cortex takes care of is not is not they're not fully in place. And so, and one of the things that I mentioned that project we're doing with MacArthur, one of the things that you know there's particular interest around is that cohort <clears throat> who are legally adults, but they're not physically sort of adult yet. Uh, those young, young, you know, young adults, the 18 to 24 year olds who, you know, who are still, um, who are still often very much in the mix in terms of, you know, com commission of crimes or acts of violence. But, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that cohort? What do you do with that group? Because they're, they're different from older offenders. They're different from people who commit crimes or commit acts of violence when they're older and have, presumably a much greater appreciation of you know the the right the right and the wrong of what they're doing or their you know a greater ability to control their impulses um you know so it's an interesting it's an interesting subset that legally is you know what, not and what do you do what, what, i mean what are the policy consequences there are you going to have a a third uh, segment perhaps with uh different support structures for these individuals yeah, I mean, certainly that's there are advocates and policy uh, policy people in the United States, in particular, in various specific states, um, who are very much in favor of that or treat you know again treating that group um, that group differently. Although you know, the older you get, the less sympathetic you become, right, in terms of popular opinion or from policymaker interest. And so, the closer you get to twenty four, the lot you know, the less interested our people are in hearing why you're why you're uh, behaving the way you're behaving and much more interested in punishing you for your, the consequent, you know, punishing you for your actions. So, um, but there is, I mean, there's a, there's a serious conversation going on in many places about how do you sort of cleave off at least part of that group? Maybe it's 18 to 21 that you're, that you're dealing with slightly differently, but, but yes, with a, with a potentially less punitive, uh, you know, structure of sanctions and one that is more geared toward sort of providing the supports, you know, there are, there's, you know, there's, I think a deep appreciation for the need for accountability for one's actions, but also to, to, to marry that to the, you know, a system of supports that would allow these young people, you know, these young adults to, uh, you know, not necessarily go deeper into criminal justice systems, which, you know, in many cases guarantees, you know, or sets them on a trajectory that all but guarantees future involvement in, uh, in additional criminal justice matters. Such, um, such diversity of research and all very fascinating. And each one of these research areas in itself, we could have a whole five-day uh, <laughs> conference, right, on each one of them. Yeah, true. Um, the conferences that you mentioned a little bit earlier, these two annual conferences or competitions uh, where researchers sort of throw their hat in the ring, what does that look like? Who are these researchers? Where do they come from? Must they be well advanced in their careers? Could they be postdoctoral researchers? Could they be frontline practitioners perhaps in, in South Sudan? I don't know. Yeah, so the answer is all of the above. Um, we we uh, we break it down in a couple of in a, in a few different ways, and so in terms of our annual competitions, we have something we call our emerging scholars, and that's a that's again an open call for uh, you know more junior researchers who are specifically uh, PhD candidates who are working on their dissertations. Um, and again, these are uh, submissions that are evaluated by we have an all star 
multidisciplinary peer review panel of uh, academics uh, of scholars um and these are people who are evaluating the candidates on you know on the sort of rigor of their methodology on the relevance of their work uh on you know how well and cogently presented their their proposals are and that is intentionally designed to identify really uh promising up and coming scholars who we think will have something to say of importance in terms of uh, violence research um the other annual competition we have is for our distinguished scholars and that's that that's a larger award it's a it's also uh it's also for scholars who are further developed in their careers and who we think have um you know have made a submission to us that really in some case, I think it, it really covers a couple of different camps. In one case, it's people who are very who are already very well regarded and well known in their fields. It's in the other instance, people who we really think are, you know have, are manifesting the capabilities that that you know will lead them to become you know further distinguished in their field. So it's both sort of a you know a, a further anointing of people who are really sort of at the top and and it's also sort of what we hope is a like a, a, a very important uh, landmark grant for those who are sort of emerging on you know just about to cross that threshold um the other thing worth mentioning though is that we have uh, every every two years we select a group of our uh, african fellows and these are uh PhD candidates at uh, African universities, Africans who, who are studying violence topics at African universities. And this in particular is a pipeline building project um, because we get a lot of, we get a lot of proposals about violence in Africa. Um, but we, you know, we noticed over time that we were getting, you know, we weren't getting what we thought was the, the right number or at least enough uh, of those proposals coming from African scholars. And so the, our African Fellows Program was an attempt to sort of build a pipeline for, um, you know, again, emerging scholars at African universities and provide them with sort of, with resources to conduct and to, uh, you know, to carry out their research, to to work on their dissertations, and also to provide them with sort of an intensive mentoring uh, connection. Uh, because a lot of times, not this is not true everywhere, but in in, in a number of uh, African universities, the same sort of career development and mentoring resources that exist in North American and European universities don't exist in the same ways. So this is this is an attempt to sort of help to to build cohorts of young scholars in Africa who would then be you know of the of the the caliber who could then you know qualify to be one of our either distinguished scholars or emerging scholars in our other programs. Excellent. The um, the grant size um, is there a sort of is it one size fits all type thing? Here's you know here's what it is for three years, or is it uh, does it vary according to project or? Yeah, it varies a little according to project on the um, on the emerging scholars, the, the dissertation candidates. It's an annual award for twenty five thousand dollars, and it's it, it's for one year. The distinguished scholar award, uh, we don't put a specific price on. Um, you know, we most awards are around fifty thousand dollars for one year, though in some instances we will give a hundred thousand dollars over two years. Um, but it's really the, you know, the dollar amount is really uh, secondary to the strength of the proposal. Uh, and if 
if people are able to make a persuasive case for a larger amount, we will we will consider it. So we don't put a hard and fast you know, ceiling on what people can request. Uh, but they tend, you know, they tend to be meaningful but smaller. And as far as foundation support, uh, smaller grants in terms of how foundation support you know can go. And that's why we feel like it's they're particularly well suited for uh, scholars who are at the more junior stages of their careers because they really can be, I think, important and transformative in terms of both the endorsement they they uh, they imply as well as just the the provision of, of financial resources to allow good work to be done. Gotcha, gotcha, fascinating. In terms of your own personal narrative, professional trajectory, you mentioned you're a lawyer by profession. Uh, how did you end up where you are today? Um, well, before coming to the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, I was at a an NGO called the Vera Institute of Justice, also based in New York City, uh, where I was there for about 14 years and worked um, initially with state governments around the U.S. Uh, on partnering with them to improve and reform uh, corrections policy and sentencing policy. So, you know, how, how people wind up in prison and, you know, how judges sentence people to prison. Um, you know, it's no, it's no surprise to people who have followed the sort of the change in criminal justice in the United States over the last 40 years that, you know, uh, uh, you know, after the so-called war on drugs and after, uh, the, the successful uh, politicization of many criminal justice issues following, you know, legitimate concerns about increases in violent crime in the United States that, you know, the and and the and the provision of many, many uh, federal dollars uh, to states and localities to enhance their ability to incarcerate people uh, that the U.S. prison system and jail system grew, you know, grew wildly uh, in the 1990s and and the 2000s, and so um, there was a real appetite in the early 2000s, um, and which continues today in various forms, which emerged over time as a real bipartisan interest area area of bipartisan interest to try to figure out was there a, a, a safe and economically sensible way to reduce the size of incarcerated populations. And so that's what I spent a lot of my early career doing. And that required a real, you know, sort of a real understanding of uh, crime and, and, and research on crime and research on corrections and understanding of sentencing policy. And so um, in many ways, it was a perfect um, preparation for the work um, that we do at Guggenheim, especially as it relates to, to violent crime. Um, and before that, academically, you know, many years before that, I had a background in international relations, academic background in international relations. So to the extent that we, you know, we are also very interested in work in areas related to conflict between state actors and non-state actors. And, uh, you know, I, th that was in many ways for me an opportunity to sort of return to my academic roots, which, uh, which was, a, a you know, something I really had welcomed and, you know, tickled to be able to sort of weave this all together in a perhaps unexpected manner. But uh, so, yeah, so, so in many ways, the, the position at Guggenheim and the opportunity that the foundation really, you know, presents, not just for me personally or professionally, but I think for, for the various, you know, fields and disciplines that we support and also for the, you know, the, 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 our ability to provide useful knowledge to people, um, 
it's really sort of a great synth- you know, s- opportunity to synthesize a lot of different things and hopefully come up with you know, use- useful content for people. It must be incredibly rewarding, not just to weave everything together, as you said, but even just today, being able to drive forward this body of knowledge, you know, appointing individuals who are talented, who are intellectually curious and whose research will be consequential. It, it it can be very rewarding. I mean, there are also frustrations because you know you are, you know, if you're if you're a researcher, you're you know you're one step removed from doing the work in most cases. And if you're funding the researcher or you're you know commissioning the research, you're two steps removed. So, I think you know there it, it's useful to have some humility about sort of you know one's importance or one's institutional importance in looking at these things because you know we're we're not on the front lines and so you know we're trying to we're trying to create knowledge that can be useful to people on the front lines who are out there you know doing the the hard work of trying to change change things for the better and the other frustration is just that you know as I mentioned before uh, you know and as as you and I have discussed, Alberto, in other contexts, you know, it, violence is a capacious topic, right? and especially when your business is, you know, to be interested in all of it, and you're uh, a relatively small foundation, it, 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 you know, there's only so much you can do. So there just there are just inherent frustrations with both the scope of the the, the challenge and then the capacities of of our institutional of, of our particular institution. So. Would I love to have many more resources to to address these you know th- these issues? Absolutely, but you know we we you know part of the challenge is how do we make the most of what we have you know and so not to employ a, a violent metaphor, but how do we punch above our weight uh, you know so you know, that that's that's what we try to do with with what we've got. Excellent. Well, here's to punching above your weight. Um, before you run off, key takeaway: What's the one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind today? I guess I would say that um, I guess I if I can if you'll if you'll permit me to have two, which is yeah. you know to double dip. Um, you know, one is really that um, research matters, right? Knowledge matters. It, you know, a lot's been a lot of ink has been spilled talking about you know the sort of post-truth societies that we live in right now, especially in North America and Western Europe, and the sort of polemical. Um, twisting of facts to suit you know uh, you know unsavory political ends and so that has obviously always been just sort of in the nature of politics but it does it does feel like we're you know with the sort of weaponization of social media and digital digital media that we're we are in a a dangerous and new place um and uh, i think it's important and one of the things i think is important for uh, you know, us as an institution and for Guggenheim to keep be mindful of is, um, you know, there's a role there to play in terms of trying to help us and help others understand. So how bad is it? Right. Because I think, you know, this environment uh, sort of creates a presumption of Armageddon every moment, right? The algorithms feed us Armageddon every, every minute. Right. And so I think it's very hard to keep perspective and it's very hard to keep uh, one's eye on what reality is when you're being fed a very particular version of that all the time. So I would just in that kind con- and we're and that's an area that we're working on. We're looking at political violence. We're looking at sort of what that means for democratic systems uh, in the U.S. and, and Western Europe. Um, 
But I think that also just sort of underscores the importance of facts and knowledge. You know, our tagline at the foundation is knowledge against violence. And I think it really sort of neatly summarizes what we're trying to do, which is, you know, to, to, to remind people that facts matter and that, you know, reality matters and that, you know, reality can be ground is can be found, in, you know, in factual understanding of the world around us and what it, and, a, and a reasoned understanding of what what that all means. And so that's really what we're trying to do. And, and I guess the the second takeaway really is for those who, you know, those we support and others out there who are creating the knowledge, who are, you know, who are building the academic scholarship or building the research knowledge is to encourage them to try to, you know, not necessarily ignore their responsibilities to their careers or their academic communities and the things that will get them advancement in those, in those areas, but, but to not, be satisfied with just sort of speaking to the folks who will understand what they're saying, but to really ask them to stretch themselves and to try to translate useful knowledge into, you know, language and into, uh, you know, formats that people beyond the academy and the technicians who live in the academy can understand. Uh, because there's a lot of really good knowledge out there. And, you know, unfortunately, it just too often is, you know, sits on a shelf or is never used. Absolutely. Well, here's to uh, knowledge against violence. I really like that tagline very much. Whoever came up with it, uh, very good. And uh, Daniel, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. An absolute pleasure, really, uh, speaking with you today. Great. Well, thank you, Alberto. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Daniel Wilhelm, president of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. For information about this chat and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable folks in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.